Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, my name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today I am very happy to have on an author of A Brooklyn Dodgers Reader, Mr. Andy Meekley. How are you doing, Andy? Hi, how are you, my Sam? Nice to talk to you. Oh, absolutely, and I'm I'm glad to have gotten connected through you. Uh, our mutual friend Lee Lowenfish got us uh, in touch with each other. He's been on the podcast numerous times, so he said that you'd be perfect for this, and and I uh, have to agree with him based off of our conversation. So, please start us off with your Brooklyn roots. Well, I, I was born uh, in, in Brooklyn, of course, in 1938, and I, I grew up uh, in Brooklyn and until. I guess I was there until we moved to Staten Island when I was about 27. But, you know, I grew up in the 40s. I, I have memories, like, of the of World War II. I, I had memories of incidents during those years, which meant I was three, four, five, seven, up to seven years old. And, I, of course, I clearly remember what happened after the war and uh, what it was like growing up in Brooklyn and, you know, things that uh, – it's just funny because uh, it, it's so it's – it's a world apart. I know it's a lot of years, but it's still – uh, you used to have, uh, you know, uh, the, the milkman would come down the street. I remember the horses. They would come down with a horse, and they'd put the bottles in your little milk box on your steps, and you had a vegetable man with a horse, and the Dugan's bread would come around and deliver. They'd deliver it to your house. That, that's what it was like. But my years uh, of, of my teen years in Brooklyn uh, were filled with, uh, you know, street games and uh, stickball was, you know, stickball was king. We, was, uh, we were like, uh, we played Sunday afternoons. We had a lot of guys, a lot of young fellas in my neighborhood. And there were two groups. One group was a little older, and, and our group was like in, uh, uh, in, in the early teens then. And they would have first, the, the, we call them the big guys. They would have a stickball game on Sunday afternoon. We would follow after they were finished. And the people would come out of their house and they would sit on the steps, on the, we call them stoops, they would sit on the stoop, and across the street there was a couple of apartment buildings, and people would be at the windows, because of course there was no air conditioning, windows were always open, and everybody had the Dodger game on. So you'd be watching the stickball game, you'd be listening to the Dodger game, and people would be talking about what, what they were watching and what they were listening to. So baseball was, you know, part of our, our, our growing up, it was part of our life. Right, exactly. So tell me, you uh, you grew up in Kensington. What was the neighborhood like when you were growing up? Well, uh, Kensington, they called it Kensington. I don't know if they still do, but it was like right at the edge of Borough Park. And uh, I lived on a street, 35th Street, which was bordered by 14th Avenue and Dayhill Road, and that was it. After that, the number of streets, they were longer. They you know, 36, 38, 50th, 60th, uh, all the way down to the to where the bridge is today. And but my street was one, and it was virtually all Italian and Jewish. This is the way we grew up. There were a few. Can I ask you again? 14th Avenue and what was that? Day Hill Road. Spell it. D A H I L L. Thank you. So our first neighborhood team, that's the way you started playing ball. Uh, you, you, you began with a neighborhood team. We had enough kids in the neighborhood to form a team, and we were called the Day Hill Cubs. That was our first game in the ice cream league in, in Brooklyn's parade grounds. But the neighborhood was, uh, as I said, it was mostly uh, uh, 
Italian. Uh, in fact, Italians were on one side of the street, and the other side of the street was almost all Jewish. And it was, I always, I referred to the neighborhoods in those days as like the Greek city states. They were so autonomous. Like uh, there's a candy store on the corner. There was a, uh, a little uh, uh, a little grocery store on the corner. There was a, a Chinese laundry right around the corner. You, you, you didn't have to leave the block to actually get everything you wanted and do everything you wanted to do. But it was, a, it was, it was a, uh, just a, a wonderful way to grow up, a fun way to grow up. Uh, we, we enjoyed it. And uh, like I said, we played ball. We, we played our, our stickball on the streets. We played baseball in, uh, in a local place called the Thomas Brothers, Thomas Brothers Storing, storing uh, Store, moving and storage company, and they had a lot in the back of the building, and we, that's where I first started playing baseball. But stickball was was a big thing. Uh, there was a the cop, there was always somebody in the neighborhood, always uh, somebody who would complain. So there was some lady at the end of the block who complained about our playing stickball because she was afraid we would crash into her hedges or in front of a house, and she would call the cops. And the cops would come by, a radio car would come by, and they'd take our, our stickball bat. And then they'd drive around the corner and drop it on the curb so we can get it back. And we'd run and pick it up and start playing. She'd call again, and they'd come back and they'd say, can't you guys wait till we get out of the neighborhood? Then we don't have to come back so fast. So, so everybody was with us, and it was, it was just a, a, a great way to grow up. And by the way, it's still, it still is called Kensington. And uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned... You know, that's where you first started playing baseball. What position did you play, and why was that the position you played? Uh, well, uh, I, I, my earliest memory was, was playing the infield, and uh, I, I guess when we started a team, it was, like I said, it was, it was a neighborhood group, and we kind of, you know, picked our positions. I want to play here, I want to play there. And I guess I picked shortstop because Pee Wee was my, my favorite at that time. Well, he always was, remained so, but uh, he was my favorite, so I picked shortstop, and I played shortstop as a kid. Uh, we we went for about, I think it's about seven years, because play uh, sandlot ball, you progress by age. They move you into another age group. So our neighborhood team stayed together for seven years, and then we graduated from high school. And uh, uh, at that time, I was the only one, a couple of years later, my friend joined me, that went on to play uh, what they called... Uh, uh, open ball or unlimited ball at the parade grounds in Brooklyn. This is where you had no age limit. And so this is where I came in contact with all the pro ball players, guys who had played pro ball came back home and played uh, at the parade grounds. And the young fellas who were on their way up, I played against uh, maybe a dozen guys that got to the major leagues. It was it was pretty exciting. In fact, it was kind of uh, interesting to see Joe Torrey get to the Hall of Fame because I remember him very well, played against him many times. So it was uh, it, it was good. It was good. I I, I tell you a, a little uh, a little Joe Torrey story if you don't mind. Uh, Joe, uh, I played against him, and and he we, you'd, you'd hear the the word would go out that uh, you know so and so was going to sign a contract this week. I don't know why we heard it before it happened or what it was, but anyway, we heard on the weekend that Torrey was going to sign a contract this week. Now Joe, remember, had he was a terrific prospect. He had his brother was in the major leagues at the time. So, you know, you kind of say he had it made. And that, that one night, I'm walking out toward to play on the open field. And as I'm walking along, uh, this was in the evening, I see Joe coming toward me jogging. He's got white T-shirt, white pants, white shorts, and he's sweating. Because remember, the one 
thing against him that they used to say when he was a kid was that he was on the heavy side, you know. And here he is, uh, um, like I said, he seems like he's got it made, and he's still out there trying to sweat off the weight. As he approached me, we exchanged a couple of words, and he went on, and I, I, it kind of registered in my mind. But I didn't think about it till years later when he was managing the Yankees, and he was so successful. Uh, I was telling somebody that story, and I said, you know, that was kind of an indication of what this guy is made out of. And I guess if I thought of it at the time, I would have said it's going to serve him well in the future. Because, as I say, he, he, was in good, good, he could have been out having a good time celebrating instead of uh, sweating off some weight. But the, he was just one of the kids. I, we played against a lot of them. Uh, I played against uh, uh, Joe Pepitone and Rico Petroselli and Tommy Davis and Bobby Aspermani. It was, it was, it was a terrific uh, quality of ball at that time. And uh, we had a good time. You're about eight to ten blocks away from the parade grounds, and that's another book that you've uh, you've written. You you wrote uh, about Brooklyn's Field of Dreams. Talk yeah. a little more about the uh, parade grounds. Well, you know what happened that that book uh, when when the Dodger book came out, the reader, it was in 2005, and that was a year you know 50th anniversary of the Dodgers winning the World Series, and I was invited along with a lot of other writers to a number of these different uh, symposiums and things to talk. And the Brooklyn Public Library over at the Grand Army Plaza had a big weekend. And uh, all the guys were there, you know, Roger Kahn was there and, uh, and, and uh, uh, Dave Anderson. And uh, there was a fellow named Bob McGee wrote a, a, a book called The Greatest Ballpark Ever. Wonderful yeah. book, History of the Dodgers. Yeah. Bob, Bob's been on the show. Bob and I uh, go way back, actually, in, in our connect and connecting with him. Oh, great, because he's a nice guy. He wrote a good book. And my topic in, in, the, in the talk there in Brooklyn was growing up in Brooklyn, you know. And I talked all about playgrounds and the different things and all that. And when I finished, Bob said to me, boy, he said, I wish I had your experiences. You should write about it. And that's what got me started. I, I, I started uh, that winter. I, I spent contacting some of the old guys. And one thing led to another. And I wound up putting it all together in a book. And it, it, was, it was a great experience because... Uh, you know, it reached more people than I thought it was. I figured a handful of people living in the general area here. But I got calls from all over the country and letters from guys who were, you know, had relocated and had played at, I played at the parade grounds and this and that and that and this. I got a call from Florida from the guy who used to play second base at Erasmus Hall when I played shortstop alongside of him. We renewed that. So it, it was a good experience. But it was, it was just a, a wonderful thing to be playing ball there. My... The big claim is that I don't think there's a place in the country that produced as many major leaguers and professional ball players as the parade grounds did. We had a, uh, there were just so many over the years, and it was just a, it was a, there was a great passion for the game uh, among uh, the, the guys that played there. Uh, you remember, you know, especially in unlimited ball, we weren't getting paid. And, and uh, this was like past the, the semi-pro year, although occasionally somebody, uh, you know, some of the teams would, we had money games and some of the teams would pay a pitcher or something. But the semi-pro ball was gone. And uh, you know, these are people that, these are fellows that worked all week and had families and all that. And yet here they were uh, playing, four, we played four or five times, four or five games a week. We played a doubleheader every Saturday, every Sunday, and at least one game in the evening during the week. So there's a lot going on. It was, uh, give you an idea, what I call the passion. Uh, we, we used to have a thing. Uh, it, I don't know who started it, but sometimes it, it was terrible to wake up on a, on a sunny day and go down there and find you couldn't play because the field was wet from maybe rain during the night. So we had a little thing across the street on Coney Island Avenue. 
there was uh, an SO station. We'd go over the gallon of gasoline and pour it over the infield. And then you'd drop a match on it, and it would smolder, and it would dry the mud. It was really good. So one day, we, I had a manager by the name of Fred, Freddie Weber, and he was a, a real, uh, they, we used to kid him, call him like the lip, like the Rocha. He was always fighting with umpires, and he was a very aggressive guy, and he died to, to win a ball game. And uh, he used to use this all the time. Well, one day we were playing a, a big game, an important game. It was, I don't know, one nothing or 1-1, one, one, getting late in the game, and the, the heavens opened up. It was torrential. And by the time it finished, it was just too muddy to play. So Freddie said, well, before we give it up, let's, let's take a crack at it. So he knew he was gonna, it was going to be a tough job, so he sent a bunch of us over. We brought back six, seven gallons of gasoline, poured it on the field. When he dropped the match, that thing went up like a redwood forest. I mean, there were flames with shooting 20 feet in the air, black billowing smoke. The poor people in the apartment house on Cape Avenue got scared. They called the fire department. Fire trucks drove up onto the, onto the grass, onto the field, put a fire out. <laughs> and they gave him a hard time. Yeah, you crazy? What are you crazy doing something like this? Ah, I just wanted to play ball. But that, that was, I think, kind of represents the passion that we had uh, for, the, for the game. We, you, you, yeah, the passion you had for the game was you wanted to play so badly you lit the field on fire. Yeah, yeah, we did anything we could to, to play. You know, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm doing right now is, is looking at the uh, the map of Brooklyn, and, and I like doing that a lot during these podcasts, especially when I talk to the uh, Brooklyn Borough historian Ron Schweiger when we're talking about uh, all different kinds of streets. And you uh, talking about uh, 14th and Dotto, uh not too far, not only from the parade grounds, but from Ebbets Field, really. I mean... Uh, that was that was probably a healthy half hour walk. Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it was a, it was a nice walk, and we did it sometimes when we were kids. But uh, most of the time, it was either tra- uh, driving in the trolley cars, or uh, of course, when I was really young too, my, I went a lot with my father. That's where it all came for me. You know, uh, in those days, especially, I think the the bonding thing was was probably pretty strong because. There wasn't much else besides baseball that you really, uh, you really, you know, will latch on to. So when my father was a, he had played ball and he was a, a big fan of the Dodgers and he used to tell me his guys were, you know, Dazzy Vance, uh, Babe Herman, Dolph Camilli. He would tell me about them, and uh, you know, we would we would usually uh, uh, in those days we drove. He used to have an old, he had an old black Chevy. I remember, us forty six or forty seven Chevy. And and I'll tell you what it was like. We would. Uh, we'd sit down sometimes after dinner to watch, to turn the game on, and 30 minutes before the game, Happy Felton's Not Whole Gang came on. And uh, we'd, we'd turn it on, and Happy Felton, my father, said, hey, you know, we'd stop, you want to go out there? I'd say, yeah, this is, you know, a half hour before game time. Yeah, sure. And we'd jump in the car, and we'd drive over to uh, uh, Prospect Park. Now, my father was a cop. He was a, a New York City police officer in the 7-4 precinct, which had their... Uh, their precinct house on the grounds at the parade grounds attached to the clubhouse. So he worked. He worked the parade grounds. He worked uh, Prospect Park, and he worked uh, Ebbets Field. So he'd go into Prospect Park. He'd pull up on the grass and put his card in the window, and then we'd walk out on the street, and we'd walk up uh, Parkside Avenue to, uh, past the park. across the street, You cross Flappish Avenue, and there was – the botanical gardens on one side, and across the street there was the Bond Bread Company, and uh, 
they they must have been baking bread 24 hours a day because when you anytime you pass that place the aroma of the bread was just filled the air and the funny thing is uh, 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 uh a friend of mine was telling me recently, he said, you know, I, I read in your book what you said about Bond Bread, and he says, boy, it came back to me. How I, Everybody remembers the Bond Bread Company. But Ebbets Field was about a block behind, beyond that, a block, block and a half, and it was so exciting to, to approach it. But, yeah, we, we also, we walked at times, but I'll tell you the walk that I will not forget. The day they won the World Series, uh, 55, well, I think it was the 4th of October, I think. And when that happened, it was like, mid-afternoon, and everybody went crazy. I mean, the place totally erupted. And we were at our neighborhood, Church of McDonald Avenue, and they hung statues, they hung dummies up on the lampposts, and we, 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 took, we used to have the, we wrote signs, hand-printed signs on paper, you know, Dodgers, Champs, and then we would chew a piece of gum, take the gum out, and that would be the glue. You put it on the back of the, the sign, and as a trolley car went by, we would run alongside it and bang the, the, the sign onto the trolley car. So we wound up going. We had garbage can covers we were slamming together, and we wound up going all the way up Church Avenue, and we got all the way to uh, Ebbets Field. And uh, when we passed the Bond Bread Company, is another thing. It was about three stories. It was like a warehouse-type building, and they had this stunt thing hanging from all the windows. And I climbed up on the first floor, and I reached up and I pulled down a bunting, a big sign, about the World Series, and I kept that for years, and somewhere along the way, I lost it in a, a moving from one place to another, from one apartment to another, to the house. I, somehow I lost it, but I had that. But we got to Ebbets Field, and everybody was screaming and yelling, and it was fireworks, and it was just, it was just an incredible experience. But that's, that walk, uh, you know, supersedes any other time we did it. Did they, it was, did they open the uh, ballpark? No, not that I remember, no. No, we weren't in the park at all. No, just uh, just to the outside. Everybody was there was thousands, of hundreds of people standing around outside, and all that was going on. What's remarkable about where Evans Field is is that even on the map today, uh, you you see the plot of land, you see the the block, the the four block uh, weird rumbus that that it is, and yeah. it looks like a ballpark. Basically, just that, that the way it's shaped, and, and there wasn't too much uh, done in terms of uh, changing the streets that uh, that that Charlie Ebbets got done. Uh, no. So this, I think, it it really not only uh, says a lot about how smart he was to pick this spot, um, but it it also just says a lot about uh, about how much of a city uh, ballpark it was. Yeah, well, you know, there's apartment buildings on the other side. Yeah, well, in those days, the ballparks were built right in the heart of the of the community, and that's why they had those odd shapes. Ebbets Field, Fenway's like that. Wrigley was like that. And I remember going to uh, what they used to call Shide Park, and then later Connie Mac Stadium in Philadelphia. I was down there. That was shaped just like Ebbets Field. Uh, it had to fit the configuration of the streets. That's one of the reasons there was that short left field, the short right field wall, and then they put the screen about 40 foot high, and that's where the Duke used to hit him over that screen into Bedford Avenue. And some of the kids, I really never did it because when we used to go to games, my thing was get there early and, and get to see batting practice and infield practice. And we used to, in those days, we would pack a sandwich, you know, uh, 
your, your mother would make your sandwich, you'd pack a sandwich, you'd have a 10 or 15 cents to spend, and, uh, uh, and, and you'd go to the game. And often we went with free tickets from the police athletic league, the PAL. For me, it was the 7-0 precinct on Lawrence Avenue. We'd, you'd go over there and they'd give you tickets, uh, free tickets to the game. You wore this little thing you hung on your shirt, a round thing that said police athletic league. And you went to the center field gate and they let you in there and they put you up in the bleachers. And which at Ebbets Field, the bleachers was, was practically a grandstand seat in these ballparks today. Right. And I remember times when, uh, for a period of time, when Cookie Lavagetto, the old Dodger player, was a coach. And he would come out to center field and he'd toss a couple of baseballs up to us kids in the bleachers uh, uh, that were there early, you know. But but that was, uh, that was but the, uh, there were, I had a friend that would, used to do this all the time. A lot of the kids would go out to right field and they'd stay over on Bedford Avenue. And during batting practice and sometimes in the game, they'd be able to... Uh, uh, they'd catch a ball that was hit over the fence. And if you caught a ball, you can come back inside. They would let you in, into the ballpark. And sometimes they'd come in the sixth or seventh inning with the, with the free baseball and just, just to watch a, a, a few innings. That's remarkable. Uh, it, was a, it's, it was a great time. It was just exciting and fun. <laughs> so talk a little bit about Jackie Robinson and when he came came around, uh, it, your sentiment is actually something I, I've heard a lot about the, you know, the feeling when it actually happened. Well, uh, Jackie, Rowe, when, when Jackie Rowe came, I mean, you got to remember, I was like eight years old, and uh, uh, I was aware. We, my my circle meant my friends and my family. My family was my father and his three brothers, all lived in the, in the same neighborhood, and we were all Dodger fans. And, you know, we knew Jackie Robinson was the first. In those days, they said Negro, the first Negro to play in the major leagues. Uh, that's all we knew about it. And that was it. There was really no uh, uh, no, no real – I didn't have any real feeling about it one way or the other. And uh, he was just another ball player. Uh, but uh, it was only in later years that, that I read so many of these things about him I don't think uh, as that much was, was written in the newspapers or it was probably buried in, in an article here or there or a column here and there. Uh, but it wasn't like headlines, you know, that this happened and that happened. And I don't think we knew that much about it. Years later, I used to always uh, give my father books to read. After I read them, I'd pass them along to him because we had the same interests, and baseball was one of them. And one day we were talking, and uh, I think it was a couple of uh, – Jules Tidell came out with that book and uh, the Faulkner had a book about Robinson and my father had read them and one day we were talking and he said and boy he said he really went through a lot I don't think we were that cognizant of what was what was going on in that respect uh, I also said uh, you know they talk they there's an expression that they say I know Campanella said it and others did that it could have only happened in Brooklyn uh, to a certain extent this was true because Ricky couldn't do it in St. Louis so he had to come to Brooklyn when he came to Brooklyn he was able to do it but you know it makes it makes us sound like uh, people uh, those of us in Brooklyn were you know democratic about it or you know humanitarian about it uh, maybe that's true but I, I often said that you know if Jackie had come up as a giant we would have hated him, and they would have called us bigots because right. the, the, the rivalry with the Giants, we didn't care what color you were. You were a Giant or you were a Dodger. That's, that's, that's where, the way it was. Talk a little bit more about the rivalry. What are some of your, your memories of how heated it got? Oh, God. There was, it was, you know, remember, this is the only time that there were two teams in the same league in the same city. 
and they played 22 times a year. So if you went out to a ball game at Ebbets Field, there were a lot of Giant fans. If you went to Polo Grounds, there was a lot of Dodger fans. And there were people in the borough in Brooklyn that were Giant fans and Dodger and, and Yankee fans. And, uh, you know, it was funny because you, you'd go to the, the grocery store and the, the guy's cutting a pound of bologna or something, and you, you next thing you know, you're having an argument about them. But uh, it, it was a tremendous rivalry, and it, 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 during my time, it was the strongest part because uh, when DeRosha went from the Dodgers to the Giants in 1948, uh, he was he was a tough son of a gun. You know, he was a sticking in his ear type of a manager. You know, and right. uh, uh, he he would throw at he would throw at hitters and uh, guys like Robinson and Campanella and Carl Ferrillo were always the victims. Okay. And uh, uh, you know uh, they hated DeRosha. They that it started before he left, but uh, it. It just made the rivalry that much stronger, and, and of course he had Sal Magley, who had that uh, uh, that that uh, uh, you know his mantra was uh, you know up high and inside, low and away with the curveball, sort of ball high. And he was the one that said when he told Don Drysdale about it, and he made him throw, he made him knock down uh, uh, Hank Aaron twice, and then Drysdale says, why did you not, why did I knock him down twice? He said because. The first time, the first pitch, uh, he knows now that you didn't. It wasn't an accident. He knows you meant it. So it, that was his his way of pitching, and it it, it created an awful lot. Uh, in uh, in '53, you wound up. Ferrillo blamed uh, DeRosha for it all the time, and Ferrillo was beaten by a giant pitcher around I don't know 1950 or 51, Sheldon Jones, and he blamed DeRosha for for making him throw at him, and so he had this this thing for him, and in uh, and in '53, uh, he uh, he decided he wasn't going to take it anymore. And uh, when he when uh, when they threw at him in the September game, Ruben Gomez was the pitcher. He went after the Roche, went right into the dugout, and he and he and he chased the Roche, and uh, he, he had him in a headlock. He, his head was turning purple. It was, uh, and uh, the funny thing is that it was so intense that Monty Irvin wrote a book about uh, about his his career and his life, and he talks about that incident, and he said he was always friendly with Ferrillo. And the next year, he said he would uh, he would uh, see him on the field. Hey, how you doing, Carl? And Ferrillo wouldn't talk to him. So he went over to Campanella and said, "Hey, Camp, how come Ferrillo don't talk to me? We've always been friends." He said, "Camp, he says he hates you." He says, "Why?" He says, "Because you were one of the guys that stopped him from killing DeRosha. That's how intense the rivalry was. But it was it was it was great baseball at the same time. And any time the Giants came in, I have a friend who's a Giant fan, and we we still go at it today. And he says the greatest baseball he ever saw in his life was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Ebbets Field. You had uh, Newcomb, Erskine, and Rowe against Jansen, uh, Magley, and uh, Hearn. And those those were three games. And boy, boy, was that baseball, I'll tell you. And it was... Uh, it was it was rough, tough, and it was always always somebody was getting thrown at, somebody was getting knocked down all the time. It's the way they played the game, you know. Yeah, it's it, it's remarkable uh, that they've gotten a little bit away from it, but you know, out of protection of the players in some ways. Uh, and, and now, it, the worst of it is the fact that they're they're uh, about to ban coll- uh, collisions at the plate, which is very upsetting to me. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, the next thing you know, I don't want to see anybody get hurt, but that's stupid. It's it's going to make the game worse than it is. And next thing you know, they'll be telling you you can't break up a double play at second base. And uh, right. what else is there? You know, it's uh, and then even the I don't I don't really care for the uh, uh, 
the replay stuff, you know, where you look at the they look at the replay. I mean, I hate to, I, I've had occasions where I uh, got a bad call and I was sure I was right, and you know, you hate to do it. It might force your game and all that. But I always say that's part of baseball. Baseball is the most human game. They'll always uh, they'll always talk about the uh, uh, batting average. You know, if you fail 70% of the time, you're a success in baseball. It's truly a game of failure. And the reason, it's a human game. It relies upon human weaknesses. And when you take the umpire out of the game, uh, you know, it's too mechanical. I, I just don't. And if you, there's, there's going to be trouble. Wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say that you um, want the call to be right, though? Uh, no, no. Uh, I want the call to be right, but if, if if there are a lot of bad calls, then you've got to work on training your umpires better. I mean, I, I, I was an umpire for a while, too, after I quit. And uh, uh, not that I was a good umpire or anything like that, but I knew that all you were you, you were out of position or you did something wrong. Now, that, that, that's the human part of the game. I don't think you should take that away. Well, I'm, but glad, gonna have, I'm glad that the Mets got a, a no-hitter under the, uh, you know, the deadline. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're a Mets fan. I'm a, yeah, I'm a huge Mets fan, and, and I was actually at the no hitter on the right field side where the uh, Carlos Beltran ball, which just added to it as well. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, but I know that I know that in from from your perspective, though, you got a little away from baseball when the Dodgers left. Uh, yeah, well, I I, I I of course lost the rooting interest, although over the years. Uh, here and there, uh, in a given season, I might. I was a Pete Rose fan, for example, and I think with the 1980 Phillies, I hooked onto that and I enjoyed watching them play. But uh, otherwise, but then I saw the game deteriorate so badly. It's such a. Uh, it's sad to watch it today because it's so fundamentally inept. So uh, I, I, I got away from it a lot. Elaborate on that a little bit. Well, you know. Uh, I, uh, because I write about it uh, sometimes, I, I'm mostly a criticism. I'll write a column or an article here and there. I try to keep up with what's going on. So I read the papers, uh, but it's hard for me to watch more than two or three innings at a time. So in the morning, I turn on the Major League Baseball Network, and they have, uh, they have a show on for an hour where they have all the games. You know, they, they give right. you the highlights. And I'll tell you, I watch that for 15 minutes. You find a half a dozen mistakes. The biggest mistake is... Uh, Outfield is overthrowing the cutoff man. This happens all the time. Uh, they throw to home, no chance at a play. It's over the cutoff man. The runner, wind, the the batter takes the extra base. He winds up in scoring position. These are things that they, uh, you know, you 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 were reprimanded for doing this as a, as a kid because they taught us the right way to play the game. I've seen things. I I have a pet peeve with the middle infielders. They they have a thing. I saw this in a playoff two or three years ago. Uh, the, the, a guy is stealing second base, the shortstop or the second baseman, instead of staying, holding the bag and waiting for the throw, they come in several feet, take the throw, and they turn around and swing, try to reach the guy with the tag. Now, you're giving him the back part of the base. And of course, they don't know how to slide too well today either, but a hook slide could easily beat them. Plus the fact that we were taught that the ball gets there faster than you can, than you can if you move up and turn around. And in, when I saw this in the playoff, the, the next day, Larry Boa was on television, and he's he a guy that was a, a very good shortstop and also a manager. And he explained why it was wrong and, and why, how it should be done and all that. And I'm saying to myself, 
there's 20 million people listening to Larry Bowie here. Why doesn't somebody tell these ball players? Uh, isn't there anybody on these ball clubs that can tell them the right way to do things? Because Larry Bowie doesn't have a job coaching right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, maybe he knows too much. That's why. Yeah, no, right. Maybe. <laughs> you know, we're running out of time, but I wanted to get a little bit uh, to stand the man. You watched him a lot, you said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He He's, uh, um, well, obviously he's one of the best ever. And I guess he might say he was my favorite player, uh, 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 not on the Dodgers. Somebody once asked me, if you could pick one opposing player to have been in the Dodger uniform, who would it have been? I said, Musial. Because, uh, I mean, all, a lot of these guys would have been tough in Ebbets Field, a small ballpark. But that fella, he hit that, he must have hit 600 against the Dodgers sometimes. He used to hit that scoreboard like it was nothing. Uh, and, of course, he was a, he was a nice fellow. I liked him. You know, he got his nickname in Brooklyn. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, but he, I, he, I do. I do. Yeah, he, he got his nickname from the Brooklyn fans. They appreciated uh, a quality ball player, and he used to be, uh, he wasn't booed. He was cheered at Evans Field. And I always remembered, he, he had, of course, that stance, that corkscrew stance. I don't know how the heck he ever hit the ball that way. But I was sitting, we were sitting, I was with my father at a game. We were sitting in the upper deck on the first base side. And Musu was hitting. And he, uh, I guess it was an off-speed pitch. He was completely fooled. He was way out in front of it. And he just, he took his stride, and the ball didn't even reach him yet. And he just stopped there, he picked his foot up, and he swung the bat, and he hit one over the screen at the Bedford Avenue without even after the stride was over. And I said to myself, my God, how do you do that? Uh, what a ball player. It was just great to be in play. Yeah, well, you had to hit it high. It wasn't deep, but it was high. Right. It was exactly. And that's one of the more remarkable things for me is the fact that there was an avenue, a major uh, a major Brooklyn Avenue right on the other side of Epic Field Wall, of the Epic Field right field wall. And, yeah. And, you know, just thinking about all the kids and as the as um, cars are getting more, uh, are, are, are being purchased more and, and driven more. And um, By the way, Stan the Man Musial had a 356 batting average in Ebbets Field. I, I don't know what his wow. batting average was outside of Ebbets Field uh, against the Dodgers, but... Um, yeah, he, he certainly enjoyed hitting. Yeah, because a, he was a line drive hitter, and although he hit a lot of home runs, he hit that wall all the time. He used to hit the scoreboard and the screen with the, with line drives, a lot of doubles, a lot of doubles. Yeah. Tough. Uh, I, all right, so let's end with this. Let's end with uh, a little bit of your your first World Series game in 1953 that you that you went to. Yeah. My father came home with a couple of tickets, and I, I have the stub. In fact, I'm, I'm looking. It's right on my wall under a picture of Carl Erskine, an autographed picture of Carl Erskine. And uh, he autographed the stub for me, too. It's, uh, it was, there were $2 seats. In, in, uh, $2, they were raised uh, from the regular $0.60 cents or, or whatever they were at the time uh, in bleacher seat because it was uh, the World Series. So $2, we sat in the bleachers. We were in dead center field, and it was the third game. Carl Erskine was pitching, and where we sat, you were right over his right shoulder, and and center field was just not that far away, 300, what is it, four, less than 400 feet. And uh, I tell you, he had that thing breaking that day. That's the day he set the World Series record with 14 strikeouts, but he threw that overhand curveball, and that thing would go down. And I, I, uh, 
is very familiar with the pitch, which is partly why I appreciated him so much. Because uh, when I I used to face a guy at the playgrounds uh, who uh, who threw an overhand curveball, and it was murder trying to hit that pitch. And he came in, and and Erskins was like that. It would come in below your waist, below the belt, and then it would drop off the table completely. And he, Erskins, Carl told me that. Uh, uh, that Campanella, we were talking about Campanella and how good a catcher he was. He said, yeah. He said, I, I said, didn't you worry about our catchers uh, not being able to handle that ball when it went into the dirt? He said, well, I never worried about Campy because Campy would say, you bury it and I'll catch it. And uh, he was very successful. But that game was exciting. My father had come home with the tickets at the World Series. Yeah, yeah. And so we went to the World Series. It was, I went only one other game in my life after that. Uh, I think it was 64. But that that one I, I'll, I'll never forget it. Of course, it's a it's a memory, you know, that stays with you. Mr. Erskine has been remarkable on this on this podcast. He's a great man, and I'm I'm happy to have connected with him and talked some Dodger baseball. And uh, you know, everybody who's ever met him and everybody uh, who talks about him just uh, remar- you know talks about how remarkable of a man he is. And, and it's uh, it's great that he left an indelible impression on you as well. Yes, he, he definitely did. I, I got to tell you, you got time for a little story? We have, we have about uh, two minutes for that story. Okay. Uh, I, I was doing a talk one time uh, in Manhattan, and after the talk, a fella came up to me, and he introduced himself. His name is Mickey Bradley, and he said, you know, I'm working on a book called Haunted Baseball. It's about ghost stories. And he said, uh, do you have any stories? And I said, well, I said, I, I do have something I could tell you. It's not exactly a ghost story, but if you want. He said, well, can I, can I call you? I said, yeah. So he did. I told him the story. He liked it so much, he gave me a whole chapter, and a, sh- a small chapter in the book. What it was was that um, after that, well, some years after that World Series, I sent a baseball to Carl Erskine. I wrote him a letter. I said, we were at that game. And I wonder if you'd see, he signed the ball. He sent, and he sent a couple of pictures, one addressed to my father and one to me. And he said, thanks for being at Ebbets Field and this and that and that and this. So uh, I have a room in the house, and I have my trophies and books and things. And I had these baseballs along the top of the shelf, several balls. Uh, and one of them was the Carl Erskine autograph ball. was sitting on the shelf. So uh, the night my father passed away, it was about 12.30 in the morning, we got a call from the hospital. And, uh, you know, we talked about it and this and that. And then I said, well, okay, let's go to sleep. You know, we're going to have a couple of busy days. So I got into bed. I didn't go to sleep yet, and I heard a noise, a thump, poof. And my first thought was a picture fell off the wall, and I said, oh, I hope I'm not going to have to pick up broken glass. So I got up, and I looked all over the house. I couldn't find anything. And then I stuck my head in my room, and the Carl Erskine ball had rolled off the shelf and hit the floor. And I said, son of a gun. I wonder if my father's trying to... <laughs> trying to reach out. So uh, I told Mickey that story, and he loved it. He wrote it in the book, which was nice of him. Andy, thank you very, very much for coming on today. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, I, and we'll certainly have you on. I welcome you back to uh, tell some more stories about, about Brooklyn baseball. Oh, thank you. It would be my pleasure. There's a million of them kicking around in my head, and it's wonderful to talk yeah. about them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You just we just gotta talk about them, and, and they'll, yeah. uh, they'll they'll come to the uh, the top. They'll uh, come to the top. Uh, thank you, Andy. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, man. Thanks very much. Take care now. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Happy holidays. Have a happy new year. I'm unsure if we're gonna get an episode in before the end of the year. So I want to thank you all for listening over the course of of this uh, this uh, 2013. 
it, it's been remarkable talking about uh, all this stuff, and I, and we will continue to do so in the new year as uh, as as the TV show continues to, to uh, develop in my head uh, and on paper. So thank you very very much, everybody, and that's it. Take care.